And that's really the, the theme of our message about God's goodness this morning. And it may seem strange as I start to get you there, but just bear with me. Many of you were out last Sunday on retreat. We hope you had a great time and came back refreshed. And uh, last week we talked through the story of Jephthah. If you don't know the story of Jephthah, then I would highly recommend going out and getting last week's message and listening through that and understanding who this is. Because the book of Judges builds, and I decided to kind of start in the middle, and then we're going to go even further to the right, and we'll come back and pick up some of the earlier stories later. Today I want to talk through the story of Samson. I cannot do four chapters in this one setting, so I'm going to have to break this into two pieces. And I think most of you have maybe at least a general understanding of the story of Samson and Delilah. Is that fair? A few head nods? Okay. Uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to give you the backstory that you probably don't know about Samson, which will set up the story of Samson and Delilah, which is kind of self-contained, that story, as uh, almost a, a mini story of its own in, in one chapter. Uh, the story of Samson runs, uh, you know, Judges uh, 13, 14, 15, 16, right there. Let's start here, though, this morning, as you think about uh, uh, getting into these uh, story of the judges and kind of getting your, your mind focused on what's happening at this place in the Bible. Uh, we are often gripped by stories of famous people uh, who, who rise meteorically to, to stardom and influence and popularity, and then their fall is as equally dramatic as their rise. Uh, I'm always shocked at how many pro football players are declaring bankruptcy. You know what a pro football player makes, right? Uh, tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. And you're like, where did all that go? I'm always shocked at people who are the most influential in America and they're some of the most famous <clears throat> and entertainers. Uh, really are big influencers in our pop culture, and how many of those entertainers, their careers are derailed because of some addiction uh, problem. seems to be a very common story. Uh, I'm always shocked at what America culturally holds up as the ultimate idea of beauty or the ultimate idea of handsomeness and masculinity and uh, it's the movie stars that portray these things on the screen for us. And I'm always shocked at how many of these uh, super uh, rich, famous, beautiful people, super rich, famous, handsome men cannot seem to find real love in a meaningful relationship, in a meaningful marriage that lasts. And instead, the norm in Hollywood's like, you know, two, three, four, five, six marriages and you're like, wait, you're the most beautiful, accessible people out here that people hold up as an idea of what it means to be popular and beautiful, and you can't find love? Well, is there hope for anybody then? But as I'm thinking about these famous people, I'm thinking about the judges, because they were kind of this. They were famous people in their generation. Now, what's interesting about the Bible is the Bible doesn't sugarcoat the real situation. Bear with me for just a moment. Nothing reads more real than the Bible 
when you're reading about the lives of the, of the people and their stories, the, nothing is more real than a Bible character. Nothing is more fake than people who are perfect. If you know anybody that's perfect, they're not real. That's a cardboard person. That's a plastic person. That's a pro- something they're projecting that is not real, and you know it's not real because there are no perfect people. Nothing is more real than what you're going to read on the pages of the book of Judges. Nothing's more real than smart mothers who are devoted followers of God. You women all say amen right there. That's real. Smart mothers who are devoted followers of God. And nothing is more fake than heroes that are only men. You can also say amen right there. It'd be fine. Nothing is more real than people who are sometimes conflicted and contradictory. Have you looked in the mirror ever? That's a real person looking back at you, and you are sometimes conflicted. You are sometimes contradictory. Follower of Christ, disciple, maker, leader in the church, yeah, and then the other side of the story as well. And you can fill in all the blanks right there. That's who we really are. Nothing is more fake than simplistic answers to human dilemmas. Human dilemmas don't have simplistic answers. Nothing is more real than complicated situations that involve complicated people. Because that rings true to my complicated life. Nothing is more fake than stories of people who never sin and never act out of self-interest. That does not ring true to me. Nothing is more real than encountering the stories of people who have real baggage. And they're having trouble letting go of their baggage. They're not knowing what to do with their baggage. And sometimes their baggage pulls them down to where they can't be what God wants them to be. Jephthah was from the wrong side of the tracks. I showed you that last week. Samson is from the right side of the tracks. Jephthah's parents showed no love to him. His mother was a prostitute. His father abandoned him. His brothers rejected him and wrote him out of the will and disinherited him. No family member showed Jephthah any love. Samson's parents showed him love. They are engaged. They are involved. And and they're right there in a relationship with him the whole way. Jephthah is not expected to turn out right. As I'm reading the story. And he lives up to our expectations in the end. Samson is expected to turn out right. But he doesn't live up to our expectations in the end. For those who weren't here last week, the problem with the book of Judges is after Moses died and Joshua died, the people did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody just does whatever anybody wants to do. And that becomes a national problem for Israel. They were supposed to push the idolaters out and not intermingle with them. That was God's gift, land gift to His people, starting at Abraham. Now they're to go and take the land, push the Canaanites out, and push the idolaters out. And don't mix idolatry with the Yahweh God worship. But that's not what they did. Instead, they became 
canaanized. Instead of pushing the idolaters out, God's people embraced the idolaters, and God's people then became the idolaters. And there is virtually no difference between God's people and the other Canaanite idolaters that inhabit the land. That's the canonization of God's people. Now, before I go further in the sermon, I want you to be thinking about what that means for you living in a modern culture. What does it mean today that there's virtually no difference between God's people and the unsaved living in our community? What does the Americanization of the church look like? And what reforms are needed for us in this present hour? Now, the book of Judges starts bad. Everybody does that which is right in their own eyes. And then the book of Judges gets progressively worse leading up to chapter 13, the story of Samson. And story of Samson, the, the, the uh, brokenness of Israel, reaches its climax in the story of Samson. The leader before him, Jephthah, Jephthah is called to lead the nation because the Israelites have been invaded and they need to repel the Ammonites and the Moabites. They need to repel those people and there's no strong leader. So Jephthah becomes that strong leader. Samson then, a little bit later, appears at a time when now the Philistines have invaded Israel. They've brought in all of their idol worship into Israel. And the difference between the era of Jephthah and the era of Samson is that it appears now that the Israelites have all but given up getting rid of the enemy. They have no interest in separating themselves from the enemy. The Israelites are quite happy accepting things just as they are. They are under the rule of the Philistines and they're content to be under the rule of the Philistines. I would say this, Jephthah and his warriors, although they are outcasts, at least they are patriotic. Although they were a bunch of kind of Viking, warlord, you know, pirate kind of guys, at least they were patriotic. And when the nation needed them, that band of marauders rose up and said, we will fight for our country and we will repel the invasion and we will liberate our, our people. Samson is regarded as a heroic figure among the Israelites. I'm going to go out on a limb and say probably the, has the most potential of all the judges, probably has the most giftedness of all the judges, and yet Samson cares only about himself. He doesn't even care about the people he's supposed to deliver. God calls him to be a deliverer, but he just doesn't really care about you. He only cares about himself. And you'll see it in his behavior in just a minute. Samson does exactly what Samson wants to do. Now this makes me nervous because this is an attitude that is pervasive in America right now. This is what owns social media right now. This is what owns our modern culture right now. I do what I want to do. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me. Don't just. Yeah, I will do whatever I want to do. And what makes me nervous about that kind of language is I've read the Bible characters that were that way, and I've read about the cultures that were that way, and it never ends well for a culture or a character 
or an individual that wants to do whatever they want to do, period. You say, well, why does God put up with it? Well, that's a really good question. It's a really good question. Because Samson is spirit-filled. You'll see it in just a moment. Samson's going to do some mighty things. You'll see that in a moment. And you're going to be scratching your head saying, why does God use this jerk? Why is God putting up with this? Well, you have to zoom out. And you have to understand the big picture of what's happening over here in the Old Testament. God puts up with it because God is merciful and gracious and faithful and long-suffering. And God refuses to give up on His people. See, on one side, we want to be judgmental and say, God, why do you put up with Samson? But then when you look in the mirror, you're like, God, thank you for forgiving me and being patient with me and being long-suffering with me. One side of you says, God, why, why do you not do something? And then when you see the big picture, you're like, oh, I see why God is long-suffering now. Because God refused to let his people be destroyed. Now, the church is in a mess in, a, in, in the modern culture, in American society. We get that. Church has come, turned into like this feel-good club where you come to be told everything's great and everything's good and you're good and everything's going to be fine and, you know, just, okay, go home. All right, we're happy. That's it. And that's kind of what church has become in America. It needs a massive, massive reform to put the gospel back into the center of, of the message and to put disciple-making mission back into the center of the mission of the church. And we're trying to help with those reforms and correct our own problems right here. What I'm saying to you this morning <clears throat> is I'm glad God hasn't given up on His people. Because we are those people. <clears throat> and we had a lot of things broken in our own church that needed to be fixed. Amen? We may still have some broken things in our church that need to be fixed. And if we can get clarity on what those things are, you know what we intend to do? Fix them. And I hope I will have your support as we fix them. Because we want to be what God wants us to be. And you say, well, I don't know why God puts up with these rascals. The same reason He puts up with you and me. Because God, listen, you are the good guys. You are the salt of the earth. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You have to let your, listen, it, you say, why, why didn't God just wipe everybody? That's not who God is. That's not the way God works. God is long-suffering and His people must survive if His plan is going to be fulfilled the way He's told us it's going to be fulfilled. Now, you are His people right now, but every time I say God's people in a minute, it's going to be Israel that's just your forefathers, so let's put it that way. You're the new spiritual Israel. That's the old Israel I'm about to talk about. God's people are the hope of the world, so they have to survive. So God wins victory after victory for these rascals in the Old Testament, which says much more about God than it says about those rascals. We look at those people and we're trying to find the good in them that we should emulate. They're not being held up as examples for you to emulate. If you emulate anything about these rascals, emulate the fact that at times they had faith in God. And through faith, God did something great through them. The real hero of the book of Judges is God. That's what the story's trying to tell you. Not Gideon, not Samson, not Jephthah, not Barak. The real hero of Israel is Yahweh God who saves her bacon every time. You know who the hero of the church is? Not Martin Luther, 
Not John Calvin and not Charles Spurgeon and not Charles Stanley and not Joel Osteen. Jesus Christ is the hero of the New Testament church. Because He's held it together for 2,000 years and He's going to keep holding it together even through its brokenness, even though we get things wrong. You have to survive because you're the hope of the world. If there's no church, who's going to share the gospel? If there's no church, who's going to make disciples? If there's no church, who's going to show love? Who's going to shine light? Who's going to give hope? That's why the church has to survive. And I'm here to tell you, no matter what happens in this world, the church will survive. Of that, I am 100% sure. The church will survive until the return of Christ. He has promised it. It will happen, and it has to happen, and He will make it happen. Now, the heroes, and I use maybe a little H now, of judges actually turn out to be what you would properly call anti-heroes. Because in the end, you see this negative thing. They're like, oh, hero. Oh, not so much hero. Anti-heroes. All right, let's get right to the story. You ready? Whenever Israel sins, God sends agents to punish them. It's always a foreign power. Here are God's agents of punishment. When our story opens, you find the familiar cycle of Israel's backsliding. Judges 13, verse 1. And again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines. How long? That's a long time. Do you realize there's some people alive then when this story is being told? There's some people alive, that's all they ever knew was Philistine oppression. That's the only lie. That was the status quo. They did not know anything different than that. That was the norm of society to be under the oppression of these uh, people who hated God's people, these idol worshipers called the Philistines. So the story that you're about to hear is the story of how God is going to stir up the status quo to get his people to be different than the idolaters. That's the story you're about to hear. God is going to stir up the status quo, and he's going to use different people in different circumstances to stir the pot so that his people realize, oh my goodness, we're, we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. We need to be different than, than, than the world. God's people have completely forgotten what their purpose is. We've come a long way since Joshua and Moses when this story opens. They, they, they don't know the law. They've completely forgotten what their purpose is. They've forsaken their holy vocation as living images of God. And they would rather be like the worldlings, like the Philistines, than like God's children. So God's going to get involved in their political circumstances and He's going to stir that situation up so that eventually God's people regain their vocation and start living with their holy purpose. And you see it really play out. Here's a Philistine problem that you're about to see get solved ultimately through King David. Remember David and Goliath? Send out your champion, we'll send out ours, let's go to it. Mano y mano. All right, David's going to deal with the Philistines in the ear of the kings, and that's right, just right here connected to our story. So watch God raise up a deliverer now. Here's how God's going to stir the pot. In Judges chapter 13, verse 2, we're presented with a couple, a man and a woman, a husband and wife, from the tribe of Dan. The man's name is Manoah, 
and the wife is unnamed in our story. Now, because her name is never given to us, you might think that the man is the key to the story and that the woman is to remain in the background of the story, but the exact opposite is true. The husband is presented by the author as slow and dense. Now, I can't read every verse. You've got to go read it this week. The author is presenting the husband as this dense, slow-to-catch-on fellow. The wife is being presented by the author as spiritually aware and very intelligent. Man, I knew that would get an amen from somebody. The woman is presented as spiritually aware and very intelligent. Yeah, that's incredible. The author... The author who wrote this story is incredibly clever in how he uses his words. There is wordplay everywhere in the story. There are double entendres all over the place. There are riddles and inside jokes in these four chapters. There are pranks that will turn deadly in a few minutes. There is sex. There are prostitutes. There are spies. There is espionage, there is intrigue in every verse. And in this story, no one does what you expect them to do, not even God. The author who wrote this is particularly sensitive to gender issues. The women are the principal actors in every episode of Samson's story. Samson's mother is portrayed as the model Israelite woman who is a God follower. The other women in the story stand in contrast to her as the anti-type of a godly woman. You're immediately presented with a plot twist by the time you get to verse number 2. The woman that God has chosen to be the mother of the deliverer who's going to stir the pot for God, the woman is barren. Judges 13, 2. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless and unable to give birth. So immediately you've got a plot twist now. Here's the mother of the deliverer can't have a child, common biblical theme. And so the angel of the Lord is going to appear and watch the conversation now between God and the woman. Verse 3, the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine nor other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is to never be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, God presents the unborn child as a person. This is important. God says the child you're going to have is a person in you. And that person, I have a plan for their life. The person in you, I have a call upon their life. The person that you couldn't have naturally, you're going to have supernaturally. 
And from conception, my call is on that child. I'm going to use his life to do something for my larger purpose, for, to save my people from destruction. Now, I want you, the mother, to honor the Nazarite vow, even while the child, even in your prenatal condition, I want you not to drink any wine. I want you not to eat any grapes. I want you not to eat any raisins. I want you not to touch anything dead. I want you to honor the Nazarite vow while the child is still in a prenatal condition because even in a prenatal condition, I regard the life of that child as a human being. That's quite interesting. Now, don't confuse at this point Nazarite vow with being a Nazarene. Those are two different things. Jesus was a Nazarene because he was from Nazareth. Next year we'll go to Nazareth, to the birthplace of Jesus in Bethlehem and then up to the childhood home in Nazareth. Listen, he is a Nazarene because he's from Nazareth. A Nazarite has nothing to do with where you were born, has nothing to do with clan. Nazarite is a holy vow you take to God. Okay, and the Nazarite vow is usually taken for a period of time. In other words, I'm going to take a Nazarite vow for 40 days. Uh, in Samson's case, the Nazarite vow was a lifetime vow. Uh, you'll see Paul in the New Testament shears his hair, cuts his hair, shaves his head because he had a vow. And now no razor will come upon his head for the length of the vow. And when the days of the vow are over, he re-engages with his normal lifestyle. For Samson, the Nazarite vow was to be lifelong. Never. Okay, so the Nazarite vows mentioned in Numbers chapter 4, 6. Sorry, Numbers chapter 6. In Numbers chapter 6, if you want to read about the Nazarite vow, Moses says, if anybody wants to take a special vow to God, do it for a prescribed period of time. There are four big rules with the Nazarite vow. You're not to drink any wine or anything fermented. Now, this is not a commentary on whether Christians can drink wine. This has to do with the Nazarite vow. Matter of fact, I would argue from the Nazarite vow the exact opposite, that everybody's drinking wine. And now when you take the Nazarite vow, you're supposed to turn that off for a period of days, almost like other Protestant denominations would do for Lent. If you're from a different tradition, maybe than Baptist, you understand what I'm saying right now. And for Lent, you wouldn't have any wine or whatever. It's kind of a vow like that. So because they were drinking wine, eating grapes, eating raisins, uh, uh, pressing oil from grape seeds, now the Nazarite vow says none of that. So if you have a Nazarite vow, you're not to drink wine or anything fermented. You're not to eat or touch grapes or any grape product, which raisins, the skins, the seeds, etc. You're not to touch any dead body, human or animal. You're not allowed to touch anything dead. That's part of the Nazarite vow. And no razor is to come upon your head. So you, you don't cut your hair. You don't trim your, 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 your beard. No razor upon your head. And you say, why do I care? Because this is what holds the whole story together. If I don't talk about this, you miss the whole point of the story. God has a call upon this man's life, and he asked this man from birth, you're going to be special, and I want you to observe the Nazarite vow for all of your life, and this is special to me, it makes you special to me, and this is what I want you to be. Now, the story just gets 
You have to read chapter 13. It's completely comical, but you have to read it through that lens or you won't understand that it's comical. The woman goes then and tells her husband that the angel of the Lord has appeared to her and she who is barren is now going to have a baby. The husband gets ticked because the angel of the Lord appeared to his wife and not to him. And after all, he's the man. Yeah. He's yet another example of patriarchy gone wrong. Okay? This is everything that's broken in the Old Testament. He's patriarchy at its worst. And so, uh, he gets all upset that God spoke to her and not him. And, and, and he's like, well, God, why won't you speak to us? Come on. Well, the woman goes back out and she's alone in the field or somewhere. And God appears to her again. God's really just jabbing at this jerk, okay? And so she comes back in and said, God's way. And then God eventually appears to both of them. But when God appears to both of them, it's really crazy. Because whoever wrote chapter 13, the author of Judges 13, maybe Samuel, we're not sure who wrote it, but maybe Samuel, whoever wrote this, portrays the husband as really a dim-witted homer. And and he portrays this man as somebody who's trying to intimidate his wife. And then when God does show up at the home, the jerk tries to intimidate God. Tell me your name. Who are you? And starts giving him the third degree. And and, and there's this friction between them. And they're all bowed up. And God's just kind of chuckling like, "You're, you're just an idiot, man. Just completely clueless to what's happening. The woman sharp, spiritually in tune with God, understands what's happening and who's talking to her. Now that's all of chapter 13. Let me just deal with the last two verses. I, I summarized the whole chapter. Chapter 13, verse 24, the chapter ends with two verses that leap the story forward by tens of years, by decades. 24, the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. I just want to point out one thing right here. In the Hebrew, his name is Shimshon. Shimshon. Sunshine. His name is Shimshon, sunshine, in the Hebrew. The problem with what they named him is Shimshon is the name of a Canaanite sun god. God gives you a promised child, sacred from the womb, Nazarite vow. You pop him out, name him after a Canaanite god. Anybody see a problem? In a story, we would call this foreshadowing. You say, why? Because the deliverer is going to be part of the problem from the get-go. He's to be consecrated to God, and yet he's named after a pagan god. Oops, a daisy, this is not a great start, but it's more of what is to come. The final verse of chapter 13 leaps us forward now from childhood to adulthood. Verse 25, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahanaim, Dan, between Zorah and Eshto. So now the Spirit of God is upon him. Now, I showed you from the story of Jephthah, whenever you read this, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, or the Spirit of the Lord came upon her, something big is about to happen in those moments. Something supernatural, something superhuman is about to transpire. Now, let me leap the story forward for sake of time 
And let's get to chapter 14, sleeping with the enemy. Verse number 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and he saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Help me out here. Get her for me. She is the right one for me. You say, well, what's wrong? He fell in love and he wants this woman. Here's what's wrong. It seems that the deliverer, let's just say he's 20 now, okay? It seems that the deliverer has very little respect for his special status as God's deliverer among God's people. Samson has no regard for the divine vocation that he's been given by God. And he has now deliberately gone across the lines to a city named Timnah, which is not an Israel city. It's a city of the Philistines. And he's intentionally gone over to the enemy camp to intermingle with the Philistines. And now he sees a woman. He's saying, that's who I'm going to marry. Get her for me. And she, Samson, is now going to try to marry the very people that God raised him up to drive out of the land. Does anybody see how this is conflicting? You're called to push these people out of the country. No, I'm 20. I like her. Get her for me. She pleases me. You're like, dude, you're supposed to be pushing these people out of the country. You're supposed to be leading the army in battle against these people. What are you doing fraternizing with the enemy? I'm who I am. I want what I want. Don't tell me who to love. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to live my life. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. I want her. Get her for me. I just can't read this without thinking about my own country. I just feel like this is a very American story now. I've often hear young people talk about how they're embarrassed by their parents. How their parents embarrassed them in front of their peers. Listen, I, I, I remember a story from my, grand, my grandmother told me they were so poor that they had an old car and it actually had wood paneling on it. And the car was so old and so run down, but it's all they could afford. <clears throat> and uh, the car didn't even have windows. The car only had curtains that you pulled across the window. Oh, oh, I don't know what kind of car this was, but it sounds like one step up from a horse-drawn wagon to me. But it just had curtains instead of glass for windows. And my grandmother said, your dad, my dad, was so embarrassed to ride in that car. Because all the other kids' families had nice cars. And so when she would take him to school, when she'd get about a block away. Everybody know how this story's going to end? When he'd get about a block away, my dad would say to my grandmother... He'd say, just pull over right here and I'll walk the rest of the way. Because he was embarrassed in front of his friends by his parents. Now, that's real, and I get that, and I don't want to make light of that. But I want to say something to the young people this morning that's hard for me to say, but you need to hear it. That knife cuts both ways. 
No one ever wants to talk about how parents are embarrassed in front of their friends by the behavior, dress, action, and lifestyle of their children. That knife cuts both ways. And as much as you don't want your parents to embarrass you in front of your friends, have some maturity enough to know that sometimes you embarrass your parents in front of their friends. They have their friends over and you're laying all sprawled out on the couch in your pajamas, three o'clock in the afternoon, Cheeto cheese on your face and, you know, stuff scattered. Listen, it cuts both ways is all I'm saying. One of the things the Bible tells us is to honor one another and respect one another and submit to one another. And I would just put that out there as something that maybe needs to be said. It would have been a violation of, of the covenant for any Israelite to marry a Philistine. But for God's deliverer, it was a blatant disregard for his parents. For God's deliverer, it was a blatant disregard for his country. It was a slap in the face. You talk about something unpatriotic. Can you imagine General Schwarzkopf marrying somebody from ISIS? Can you imagine one of our five-star generals marrying, you know, a Russian spy? It's like the ultimate insult to, to patriotic countrymen everywhere. And it was ultimately an insult to the Lord. Now, it's clear that left to himself, Samson would have never had anything to do with God. I mean, left to himself, he, he could care less about God, Israel, and all of this deliverer stuff. But here's what's also clear. It is also clear that Israel was content to live their lives under Philistine oppression and not shake up the status quo. They were just fine living under the Philistine New Deal, whatever that was. They were just fine with the oppression and the idolatry and the whatever. But if you can keep zooming out in these stories and see the big picture, what God is really doing is He is shaking up the status quo. He will not let His people continue to live below the level of their divine vocation. And as I tell the rest of the story, I think you should think about what that means for you. Because you're also God's people. And maybe at times we are lackadaisical about our divine vocation of being disciple makers and being on mission. Listen, most American Christians will live their whole lives and never lead one person to Christ. They'll never make a disciple for Jesus Christ. It's the American church that's not on mission. Yeah, we go to church, but that's not what you've been called to do. You've been called to get on mission and, and take up the divine vocation of God. You're not here to, to be on vacation. You were saved to colonize planet Earth for heaven. You're supposed to be colonizing. You're supposed to be making disciples. You're supposed to be making this a little heaven on Earth. Heaven and Earth should be connecting through your ministry. Most Christians never will have a ministry. Yeah, we're just like backslidden Israel. They're virtually indistinguishable. If you were to walk into any public school, the Christians from the non-Christians, virtually indistinguishable if you walk into any business place, the Christians from the non-Christians, what's happened? We've become Canaanized. We've become Americanized. And maybe God's at work in our own country and in your own circumstances just to stir things up a little bit so that we regain our vocation and we become what God has always wanted us to be. Well, let me keep reading. Samson went down to Timnah, 
together with his father and mother. They're going to go meet the new in-laws and try to get the ball rolling and the arranged marriage. And as they approach the vineyards of Timnah, somehow Samson and his parents are separated now. Suddenly a young lion came roaring towards Samson, and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore that lion apart with his bare hands, as you might wring the neck of a tabby cat. That's my version. But you understand what happened. That young lion just, and he just ripped it to pieces with his bare hands. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. So now they go on down to Timnah, they're getting ready for the wedding, and then some time passes, and now verse 8, some time later, he went back to marry her. All right, now it's wedding time. And he turned aside on the way down to Timnah, where he had killed the lion. Remember that spot? He turned aside to see the lion's carcass, and a swarm of bees had made honey inside the lion's carcass. And he scooped out the honey... Wait, what's that Nazarite vow again? Not to touch any dead carcass. He doesn't care about his vows. He scoops out the honey with his hands and he ate it as he went along. It gets worse. And then he caught up with his parents and he gave them some honey. Oh, and they ate it too. You're so sweet, Samson. No, he's not. He didn't tell his parents where he got the honey. Because it would have been a violation of his vow and his parents wouldn't have eaten it if he had told his parents where he got it from. Not only did Samson break his vows by touching the lion, Samson broke his vows by giving the honey to his parents out of the lion. He said, what am I to make of this? Samson takes what he wants. Samson does what he wants. Samson lives just like a worldling. It never occurs to him that he's God's image bearer. He wants to do what he wants to do. So they get down there for the wedding, and they have a seven-day wedding feast, Philistine style. The wedding feast is held in her, the bride's home, a Philistine home. And since Samson has no friends down in Timnath, because that's not Israel territory, he's crossed the, you know, the Iron Curtain now, he's behind enemy territory, and he, since he has no friends there, the bride hires 30 groomsmen. Now, you're used to renting a tuxedo. They actually rented the groomsmen, okay? And so they rent 30 groomsmen to pretend to be Samson's friends during the seven-day wedding feast. Isn't this interesting? And Samson thinks he's so clever, so he makes a wager with the 30 hired groomsmen, and he says, I'll buy each of you a whole new wardrobe, a whole new outfit, if you can answer my riddle during the wedding feast. And of course, he puts the riddle forth. Verse 14, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about the lion. But nobody knows about the lion but him. So there's no way they're going to be able to answer the riddle. But Samson's so clever. He, he is a riddler. He, he loves this kind of word play. They have no idea about the lion, so he's got an instant win in this deal. And so the men conspire, the 30 groomsmen conspire to try to get the answer out of Samson. But they know Samson won't give it to them. So they go to the fiancé, the Philistine, and they say, now listen, you're a Philistine, he's a Jew. You've got to be more loyal to us than to him. And if you're a true Philistine, you'll get the answer to the riddle and you'll give it to us so that this Jew doesn't make a donkey out of us okay now this part of the story stay with me and so the fiance 
goes to work on Samson, and the fiancé's not getting it out of Samson. So these men put pressure on the fiancé. These are good guys, really good guys. They say to the fiancé, if you don't get the answer, we're going to burn your house down. Just read it. It's right there in the story. Really good, nice guys. If you don't get the answer, we're going to burn this place down. So day after day, she cries to Samson, You don't love me. If you love me, you'd tell me the answer. This is not love. If you love me, you'd share all your secrets. Okay, verse 17. She cried the whole seven days of the feast. Well, this was a great wedding feast, didn't it? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, finally, he told her, because she continued to press him, and then she, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. Now, at this point, you should be asking yourself, now, tell me again, Pastor, why is this in the Bible and why do I care? Because these are crazy stories. Why is this in the Bible and why do I care? Because God is stirring the pot. He is going to stir up the situation and he's going to use somebody who can really get it stirred up in that Samson. And God's going to stir it up for this reason. My people must survive. They cannot live as Philistines. They cannot live as idol worshipers. There must be different than the world around them. And I'm going to keep stirring this up until my people wake up and assume their divine vocation. Verse 18. So before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, Okay, we've got the answer to the riddle. What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And Samson I want you to see him becoming furious now. Watch what Samson says. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. You say, well, that sounds... It's as derogatory as you think it is. Okay? This thing is full of wordplay like this. It's as every bit as nasty a statement as you think it should sounds like. Okay? Verse 19. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. What's about to happen? Something big, maybe violent. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, a Philistine city. Here's how he's going to give them 30 new suits. He's going to go find 30 Philistines wearing Armani, and he's going to physically strip them and take their clothes. And then he's going to go deliver those. He's not going down to the suit shop and buy them. He's going to go take them by force. And he struck down 30 men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes, who explained the riddle, burning with anger. He stomped away and returned across the country to his father's house. Now listen, he stomps away in anger, fuming. His feelings are hurt. He's been gone for some time. Let me tell you what happens in the meanwhile. In the meanwhile... The father of the bride, the Philistine father of the Philistine bride, says, well, I guess he won't be back. He surely hates her now, right? <laughs> I mean, would you marry her after she betrayed you before the wedding night? He won't be back. He hates her. So the father gives the bride <laughs> to one of the 30 hired groomsmen, and they get married. Which leads us to the burnings. Samson, sometime later, says, you know what? I'm going to go back and get my bride. No one told him. Does anybody think this is going to end well? No one told him. 
If you got mad at your fiance and stomped away for a few days and went back to get her, and you realized, what would your disposition be like? You're not Samson. You'd probably want to fight somebody. Watch what's going to happen. Later on, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat, went to visit his wife. He got to his wife's house, the father's house, wherever that is. Knock, knock, knock. Hey, it's Samson. Let me in. Oh my gosh, what are you doing here? I'm going up to my wife's room. Anybody see how this ain't going to turn out good? And her father says, no, you're not. And the father throws himself in front and says, you're not going up to her room. No, you can't do that. Listen, we need to talk, son. I was so sure that you hated her that I gave her to your companion, to one of the groomsmen. Oh my goodness, what am I doing? Hey, here's her younger sister. Look, she's prettier than your fiancé. This is the most bizarre story ever, I'm telling you. Look at the younger sister. Now, in the Samson and Delilah movie, they made the younger sister Delilah. Uh, I I don't know that that's true or not, but I, I don't think it is. But here, take the younger sister. Look, she's prettier than the one you picked. She's more attractive. And Samson said, this time, listen, this time, I have a right to get even with the Philistines. And I will really harm them. Now, If a man made a threat like that, it would be serious. But if a man like Samson made a threat like that, it will be a national disaster. He's a one-man army, okay? So what's he going to do? Well, he decides to do something clever. He's a clever guy. And so he sits down and he thinks about this for a long time, no doubt. And he says, now, I don't just want to get him. I want to really get him. So here's what he does. He says, I'm going to see if I can destroy the whole Philistine economy in one night. Well, that would be quite a hack, wouldn't it? To bring down the whole agrarian economy in one night. It's an agricultural economy, agrarian economy. So to bring down an economy, you have to affect the wheat, the vineyards, the grapevines, the olive olive vineyards. You've got to affect the, the agriculture. Samson says, I've got a plan. Here's what he did. So he went out and he caught 300 foxes. Now, the word for fox in Hebrew is the same as jackal, coyote, okay? It's probably coyote and not fox. So he went and caught 300 coyotes. Now, in Texas, we have coyotes, a lot of them, okay? I don't know how long it would take to trap 300 coyotes in Texas where we have a lot of them. But not in five minutes, I can tell you that. And I don't know how you grab a wild coyote. And what do you do with him when you catch him? I've got so many questions I can't even answer. Samson caught 300 foxes, coyotes. Now what he does is clever. He ties them together in pairs, tail to tail. You're like, what? Yes, he takes two coyotes and ties the tails together. And then he makes 300 torches, and he ties the torch to the tied together tails. And then he lights the torches... And he turns loose the 300 coyotes all over Philistine countryside. And as those coyotes yelp and howl and squall and bawl and run and flop and flip and go mile after mile after mile, they're lighting one continuous fire behind them through the standing wheat. Through the olive yards, through the vineyards, through the grapevines. 
In one night, thousands of fire suddenly appear everywhere in the Philistine countryside. You say, that is pretty clever. But violence only incites more violence. Watch what happens. When the Philistines finally got the fires put out, they said, who did this? And they were told, well, Samson, the Timnites' (laughs) son-in-law. Not really, because you gave her away to another guy. But yeah, that guy, that Israelite that wanted to marry the enemy... Yeah, that's the guy who did it because his wife was given to one of the rented groomsmen. And he's ticked. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Now there's a great lesson here and I don't have time to elaborate, but violence incites violence. You want to be very careful about escalating things. And I would say to the Christian, de-escalation is always your first course of action. De-escalate, de-escalate, de-escalate. If I was a politician and I was involved in diplomacy, de-escalation, de-escalation, unless there is no other alternative, de-escalate. And instead, as a first resort, Samson says, escalate, do unto others before they do unto you. Do unto others. That's that's his motive. And so now they burnt his fiancée or his ex-wife. I'm not even sure what to call her at this point. But I think you get the point. Now we are stuck in a cycle and violence incites more violence verse 7 so samson now says to the philistines oh okay is that the way it's going to be since you've acted like this i swear that i will not stop until i get my revenge on you and samson attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them and they went down and, and he went down and stayed hid in a cave at the rock Etum. now i think you get the point They do this, he does that. They do this, he does that. We're now stuck in a cycle uh, of of escalating hostility and one-upsmanship. And at this point in the story, every one of you who are smart, smart, savvy believers, you should be asking yourself, okay, wait a second, is Samson fighting the Lord's battles or is he fighting his own battles now? And I think a lot of times Christians get kind of this self-righteous, well, we're fighting the Lord's battles. No, you're just fighting your own thing. You, you, you just stir in the pot just to stir it because you like to be full of drama. And I think there's a lot of this that goes on in the Christian world that gets blamed on, well, I'm doing the holy thing for the Lord. Oh, poppycock. You're just stirring the pot because you're, you're full of drama. Stop it. Now here, God's stirring the pot, but he's doing it for a reason. This is quite interesting what's about to happen. With this pot stirred, Rather than the Israelites coming to Samson and saying, okay, Samson, you've got the pot stirred, sure enough. Listen, here's what we propose. Let's get a military campaign going, Samson. You lead us out to battle. We're behind you. We'll crush these Philistines. You're God's anointed leader and deliverer. You're the judge. Let's go get them, Samson. But that's not what the Israelites say to Samson. The Israelites come out to the cave where Samson is hiding, and this is what they say. 3,000 men from Judah went to the cave at the rock Etam, and they said to Samson, Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? Well, mamby-pamby. Don't you realize the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? God told you to push the enemy out. Samson is stirring the pot, albeit in his own bizarre way. And rather than Israel saying, listen, you're the deliverer, push them out, we're with you, let's go to battle Jephthah style. Instead of saying that, 
they say to Samson, stop rocking the boat. Listen, we like the system the way it is. Don't mess with the system. Listen, the Philistines rule us, sure, but it's not that bad. It's not that bad being a pagan. Listen, don't rock the boat. Well, this gets to an interesting part of the plot. So, so the Jews say to Samson, let us tie you up. Listen, we're going to tie you up and, and, and we're going to hand you over uh, to the Philistines, okay? Uh, it's, it's so bizarre. There's a lot of getting tied up in this story. <laughs> and it's intended to raise your eyebrows. It's part of the wordplay in the whole story. It's part of the plot. We're going to tie you up. And Samson's like, if you tie me up, don't you kill me. And they're like, no, we're not going to kill you. We're just going to give you to the Philistines because you're rocking the boat. So they tie Samson up and they tell the Philistines, we've got him. We're going to deliver Samson to you, Philistines. Don't, don't tax us so much. Be nice to us. We, we're, we want to coexist. Listen, we want to cooperate across the aisle. We want to hold hands. We want to live together. Let's go back to the way things were. So they give Samson to the Philistines. A thousand soldiers of the Philistines come to get Samson from them. They are intimidated by this guy. And so a thousand soldiers come out. Let me read it. And he approached Lehi, and the Philistines came shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson. Anybody know what's about to happen? Something big. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson, and the ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings snapped from his hands, and he looks down and finds a fresh jawbone of a donkey. In violation of his vows, all of this is important to the story. <laughs> he reaches down and picks up a, a donkey's jawbones about this big, okay? It's a club, all right? It's a battle axe. He reaches down and picks up the, the, the jawbone of a donkey. He grabbed it and struck down the thousand men. Just smashed them. <laughs> Throw them in a pile. <laughs> Throw them in a pile. <laughs> Throw them in a pile. This is all part of the language. He piles the men up and makes a small mountain. Listen, there's 200 people or more in this room. You know what a thousand people would look like? It'd be a pile of people as tall as the ceiling, as big as this room. He just keeps throwing them in the pile. <laughs> Throw them in the pile. <laughs> Throw them in the pile. When you go to a man's head with a jawbone or a battle axe, blood sprays everywhere. Samson is covered in blood from head to toe. He has piled up a thousand people. There is brains. There is gore. It's all right there. Okay? And after this grisly slaughter of the Philistines, verse 16, Then Samson said, With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. Now, in Hebrew, that rhymes beautifully. You're just like, what is happening right now? Yeah, what you think is happening is what's happening. A guy just massacred a thousand people, and standing there covered in dripping blood, he says, gosh, this is kind of funny. I just have a riddle all of a sudden. With a donkey's jaw, with a jawbone of an ass, I just made an ass out of a thousand people. The Riddler, man. What image do you have of Samson right now? He's like a 40-year-old guy 
who's actually 18? Who doesn't take life seriously? Who God wants to really radically use to be a great man. But he can't be great. You know why he can't be great? So he can't take God seriously. He can't take anything seriously. Life is just one big joke. Man, I wish I could tell the rest of the story, but I gotta stop right there. So let me close this way. Yes, the Spirit of God's going to empower him at times. It is no commentary on whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. It is only a commentary on that God is going to do what God's going to do because God loves you so much he refuses to let his people perish. And even if you have to use a buffoon like Samson, he'll do it just to save his people. When the Hebrews writer is writing the Hall of Fame, he looks backwards in his sermon about faith and he says, time would fail me to tell you about the faith of Samson and Jephthah and Gideon and Barak and all of these guys. The writer of Hebrews looks back and sees a complete buffoon, but at times exercising faith in God. And the message of Judges is simply this. Divine resources are available from God. The Spirit of God is available to everyone who will call upon the name of Jesus. He will inhabit your life and He will transform you and you will become a living image of God with a divine vocation. You don't have to take a Nazarite vow. When you receive Christ, the Spirit lives in you and you are special to God. You're a living temple of Almighty God. Heaven and earth meets right here in every one of us if you have Christ in your heart. God is living in in you. You are special. And all of God's resources are available to you. But they must be appropriated by faith. No faith, no appropriation. If we're going to do anything for the Lord as a church, it's going to be by faith. It's going to be because a group of people with faith in God are going to say, we are not content to be like the rest of the world. We're going to live out our divine vocation in our own generation in Fort Worth, Texas, to be everything that God wants us to be. If this church is going to make a difference in this world, spirit-filled people like you and I are going to yield our lives to God and say, yes, we've got to do this, and yes, we have this vocation, and yes, we have to go to school, but God, we see our purpose as much bigger than that. We're going to band together as a group of covenant people and we're going to give to missions and we're going to make disciples and we're going to try to change this world one teenager at a time in Nepal, one Pakistani at a time, one Indian at a time, one Burmese at a time, one Nicaraguan at a time, one Mexican at a time, one Texan at a time. We're going to be on mission for the Lord. A little preview to part two which will come in a couple of weeks. Let me just say this to you. Maybe God spoke something to your heart this morning about growing up and being serious about your divine calling. If you've received Christ, you have a divine calling. Get on mission. If you want to know what that means, it means seek out Christianity, seek out Eric McNair, seek out one of the staff members, say, I'm ready to get involved in discipleship. I want to be serious about being a follower of Christ. And I mean, now, I'm ready to go. Show me what I need to do. We'll get you on the path. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want you to think about what you've heard this morning. And as I lead you into this invitation, I want to focus on one specific thing. 
Many times people say to me, Pastor, God can't use me because of this one thing in my past. Or God can't use me because my kids rebelled. Or God can't use me because I rebelled against them. Or God can't use me because I had a marriage that failed. Or God can't use me because I, I served some time for a crime I did. Or God can't use me because of this thing where I, where I made a mistake and I sinned and I did this and I did this. If the story of Samson and Jephthah teaches you anything... It's that you're not allowed to tell God who He's going to use. And when you say to God, God, you can't use me because, and you fill in the blank with, I'm bashful. I don't make friends easily. I've got this thing in my past. I'm not that good of an example. I haven't been saved long enough. If people really knew me, that I'd be embarrassed. We have all of these excuses and alibis and that's all they are. Compared to Samson, you're lily white, squeaky clean, ladies and gentlemen. You are God's people. And you must be on the mission of God in your generation. Be world changers. Be difference makers. That's what I want this next couple of minutes to be about I just want you in your heart right now to cry out to God and say God forgive me for all of my excuses in the book of Isaiah God is heard saying to the people who will go for me whom shall I send oh I'm looking for someone to be on my mission I'm, I'm looking for a people who will be my people. And Isaiah falls before the Lord and says, Here am I, Lord. Here am I. In this invitation, if your heart is willing, that's what I want you to say to the Lord. Here am I. God, I'll be your people. God, I won't act out of self-interest. God, I'll let your spirit change me. God, I'll be on your mission. God, if you'll help me, I'd like to lead someone to Christ before this year's done. God, with your help, I'd like to lead a discipleship group in my near future. God, with your help, I'd like to be a part of this covenant community. God, with your help, I'd like to give to missions. God, with your help, I want to be a difference maker for you. God, I'm just praying for all the people with their heads and hearts bowed this morning who get it and who care. And God, I realize that the vast majority who are hearing this message are not like Samson at all. Lord, they want to serve you. We want to be your people. God, we don't always accomplish that. We don't always know how. But God, we just want to rededicate ourselves this morning and present ourselves and say, here we are. Spirit, guide us. 
Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Empower us for a great work that you have for us. Lord, stir up our community. Not with this kind of violence and not with these kind of things. I'm not praying that, Lord, but I'm praying, God, stir our hearts for a revival in our own nation. Let us be part of those who lead the way. Here we are, Lord. Use us. Father, bless your people now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.